So I recently took care of an interesting patient who I felt like really demonstrated. This is Dr. Tanita Ganguly. Hi, mom. She told me she had to say this on the air. Does this get edited? Yes, it gets edited. Okay, so what if I stutter? Is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. Dr. Ganguly, known to many of us in Philly as Mindy, has a particular interest in non-epileptic events. Now, back to her patient. She's a 64-year-old woman who came in with symptoms concerning for a stroke. She was found to have a stroke on MRI, and then while she was in the hospital, she had uh, an episode of staring with her eyes open, blinking, 20 to 30 minutes long. So naturally, she was started on an anti-epileptic drug, levetiracetam, for presumed localization-related epilepsy. Uh, she was discharged home. She continued to have these events on Keppra, came back to the hospital, and she actually went through a differential diagnosis workup at this outside hospital where she was found to have these events without an EEG correlate. Red flags should be going up all over the place right now. Despite this, she was continued on Keppra. She had a third admission to the hospital, and this is when I saw her, where we again diagnosed her with psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. Despite her coming in and telling us that I had a stroke, I had seizures, and they sent me out on Keppra. So that was her understanding of what was going on. I thought she was interesting because she had a lot of the features that we see every day in patients with PNES. She was a crisis care manager. She worked in a hospital setting. This all started on uh, the anniversary of her son's murder. She has a history of depression, uh, she's a woman, and she had a stroke, which, again, uh, suggests that maybe she did have a real epileptic seizure. This is only one of several stories Dr. Gangley shared with me today, and she's seen some pretty unusual patients. woman who actually has a history of fibromyalgia, anxiety, depression, I've asked her to join me on Brainwaves this week to share her experience with psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, PNES, or psychogenic non-epileptic events, PNEE, whichever you prefer to call it. Throughout the episode, you might hear me go back and forth between PNES and PNEE. Uh, right now, I just I really prefer PNEE because I personally don't believe they are seizures in the fundamental electrophysiologic sense. Perhaps more importantly to me, when calling it PNES, I tend to slur my words a lot, and me saying PNES can sound kind of vulgar or something. Um, I'm just way more comfortable calling it PNEE. PNES, because it's so hard to diagnose and confirm, has a very wide range of prevalence, anywhere from 1 in 50,000 to 1 in 3,000, which is a huge range. What we do know is that this story is common. These patients are shuttled from hospitals to hospitals and often don't get the right intervention or the right care. Uh, among those so there are huge implications for this, which we'll talk about. Implications like the median duration of symptoms without a diagnosis of PNEE is 7 to 10 years. 10 years of single or multiple anti-epileptic drug therapies, ED visits, and many, many different neurologists. How about some other crazy statistics? Did you know that 1 in 5 patients with PNEE are referred for epilepsy surgery? Brain surgery. For normal brains. And according to some data, half of patients in refractory status epilepticus are actually experiencing these non-epileptic events at the time, these pseudo-seizures. 
I mean, jokingly, we call it pseudo-status, but this is a real problem. And you can imagine the risks of aggressive treatment, pharmacologic sedation, induced coma, intubation, mechanical ventilation, invasive testing, not to mention the costs associated with this aggressive and unnecessary treatment. Yeah, um, so PNES is not only a burden on the individual, but it's a huge drain on uh, healthcare and taxpayer dollars. So each individual with PNES um, requires about $100,000 in their lifetime in unnecessary diagnostic tests, imaging, admissions, and ED utilization. On a society level in the U.S. alone, we spend about $900 million a year. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this is not, uh, this is not, on treatment on PNES. This is something that was deemed unnecessary treatment and management of PNES. Now that we've got a good idea of what PNEE is, let's get back to Mindy's first case and how she quickly realized that her patient's seizures were actually non-epileptic in origin. She had prolonged events. I mean, 20 to 30 minutes of unresponsiveness uh, should have some kind of electrographic change on EEG. Um, and then while examining her, I mean, her eyes were open, she was blinking, she didn't have a gaze deviation, she kind of had a flaccid paralysis, but she had a lot of functional aspects to her exam. She would avoid her face if her arm were dropped on her face. Sounds horrible. <laughs> which, <laughs> which suggests some level of consciousness and... Um, and she also returned to baseline very quickly afterwards. I mean, if someone is having an electrographic seizure for 20 to 30 minutes, they're pretty tired afterwards, and you're more concerned about status. So those were all features that suggested this was PNES. What was also helpful is that every single time she looked exactly the same, which is actually a little bit more concerning for electrographic seizure because it was stereotyped. But because she had the same events and we were able to capture that event on EEG. We monitored her for a long time to make sure she didn't have electrographic seizures. This is a major point to make, and one I spent a long time on in the April Fool's Day episode from 2017. A clinical event that occurs during EEG monitoring and has no electrographic correlate, it's not an electrographic seizure. So when we hear the patient is experiencing that same event while off EEG monitoring, we feel that we can safely assume that these are still not seizures. They weren't seizures before, so they're not seizures now. Then eventually diagnosed her with PNES, discontinued her anti-epileptic drugs, and then sent her with psychosomatic follow-up. That being said, EEG is not always a sure thing. So one of the hardest things about epilepsy and PNES is that we don't have the best tools to pick up simple partial seizures, also now called uh, focal seizures with preserved awareness. So uh, actually 70 to 80% of these seizures, which can range anywhere from, you know, one arm numbness and tingling to um, just automatisms of one hand, don't show up on scalp EEG, which is far and away the most common thing that we use to diagnose epilepsy. A seizure has to involve six square centimeters of cortex to be picked up on EEG, and often these seizures just aren't big enough to be picked up on surface electrodes. And certainly some areas of the brain are more epileptogenic than others, right? So, you know, her having a stroke as a cause of her localization-related epilepsy, that can certainly predispose her to seizures. Sure. Um, 
There are certain areas of the brain that are particularly prone to injury, such as uh, the hippocampi. So, for example, if someone has traumatic brain injury or some kind of hypoxic event, often the hippocampi and those oxygen-sensitive areas are affected and can be a focus for seizures. In strokes, there is also structural changes uh, that can lead to abnormal electric conduction that can also predispose someone to seizures. Other things that can cause focal areas uh, uh, or localization-related epilepsy include tumors, also similarly because they have abnormal structures that just don't conduct electricity properly and can propagate into seizures. With some areas of the brain being more epileptogenic than others. Usually we see seizures from cortical lesions. As opposed to subcortical, cerebellar, and brainstem lesions. Although seizures have been infrequently associated with subcortical foci. So if you see a lesion on neuroimaging, whether it's a tumor, or a stroke, or just dysplastic tissue, or even demyelination, that might raise your suspicion for seizure given the appropriate clinical context. But your pretest probability for an actual electrographic seizure is affected not only by the presence of a structural abnormality. There may also be some clinical features, which you can read about on our blog at brainwaves.me, or even some historical clues. Uh, among those with PNES, women are more likely to have higher rates of uh, reported physical and sexual abuse. They have higher rates of uh, psychiatric uh, disorders, chronic pain disorders, they also are more likely to have uh, some kind of recent stressor. Speaking of women, they make up 80% of the population with PNES. And patients who have either relatives with epilepsy or in, are in healthcare and are exposed to some information about epilepsy have an opportunity for model learning, and they have higher rates of PNES as well. So when you meet people like your patient... What's the kind of conversation you have when you tell them that they have this non-epileptic event? It's, it's difficult. I think it's a difficult conversation because a lot of people know about seizures and they know about epileptic seizures. And I think one way that patients do respond to the diagnosis well is saying that these are psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, that there's many different kinds of seizures that respond to different kinds of treatment. I thought Mindy described this really well here, and it almost convinced me to call the disorder PNES. And when you think about it more, calling it a psychogenic non-epileptic event, it sounds kind of like you're discrediting whatever it was the patient experienced. As if you were telling a patient who's having chest pain from a panic disorder that their chest pain is subjective psychogenic chest discomfort. Right? I mean, let's just call it what it is. It's chest pain. But I'm still not convinced enough to call what these patients are experiencing a seizure. Epileptic seizures respond to anti-epileptic drugs, whereas psychogenic non-epileptic seizures respond to behavioral therapy, uh, to identifying stressors, and uh, they sometimes respond to antidepressants and anxiolytic management as well. When patients ask, well... How does stress or anxiety lead to me shaking my arms and legs? I tell them that we don't know. I mean, people have headaches when they're stressed. People develop stress ulcers. People develop all kinds of things from stress. They develop cardiomyopathies uh, from stressful situations, and it's just something that's not well understood. 
When you give this information to a patient, knowing that patients with psychogenic non-epileptic events, they do have a greater likelihood of having underlying psychological disorder. Are they more receptive? Are they less receptive? You know, are they more avoidant when you give them this information that says they don't have a true epilepsy? I mean, I think it's tough news to receive. I think any diagnosis, anytime you hear that something's not normal with you or your body or your brain, I think that's tough news to process. And I think it depends on a lot on delivery and how they feel about possible treatment plans and where to go from there. I think in general, people have been receptive to the diagnosis. I feel like often they agree. I mean, yeah, I have been really stressed. Yeah, I I do feel like a lot's been going on and maybe that's contributing to this. And I think really removing the stigma from psychiatric diagnosis is really important when giving the delivery of the diagnosis because I, I usually explain it as this is this is a convulsion. These are these are seizures. They just don't have electrographic changes that we see in people with epilepsy. All right, maybe I'll start calling it PNES after all. And some of these patients don't just have PNES. There's a real overlap with epilepsy. Take for instance this patient of Dr. Gangelis, a woman in her fifties with lots of red flags, history of anxiety, major depressive disorder, fibromyalgia. And she had clinical events stereotyped by loss of consciousness after panic attacks. So she was really interesting because her semiology, she had anxiety and fear with tachycardia and palpitations as well as this gastric sensation. And she actually ended up having epilepsy. So I wanted to bring this up as a trick case because she has many features that suggested PNES and We did a rapid titration off of her home anti-epileptic drugs because the exam was very functional, her story was very functional, and she ended up having a limbic seizure with those emotions, the palpitations, the gastric sensation that eventually generalized. So I think that's important because we have these features that we associate with PNES. For example, pelvic thrusting is supposed to be more sensitive for PNES compared to epileptic seizures. But pelvic thrusting is also, uh, within epileptic seizures, fairly sensitive for frontal lobe seizures. And a lot of the limbic system seizures that can occur are also difficult to pinpoint. They can have anything from anxiety and fear like this woman to... Uh, you know, forced sexual thoughts. So they can be misdiagnosed as all kinds of things. Pretty crazy story. But really not that unusual to suspect non-epileptic seizures in a patient with epilepsy, especially because of the pretty impressive overlap between these two diseases. I've heard anywhere from 10% of PNES patients also have epilepsy, but overall 5 to 50% of patients with Epileptic seizures have PNES, if that makes any sense. So out of makes good sense to me. And I hope it does to everyone else out there listening in. Now, this is the point in our show where we cue up the outro music and get to our last words from Dr. Gangoli. I think PNES is a difficult diagnosis for the patient and the provider for a variety of reasons, including diagnostic difficulties, management difficulties, um, and resources. But I think it's important that the provider understand that 
PNES can have a huge quality of life burden for the patient, has similar rates of disability, and um, is a, legit- a legitimate diagnosis that requires care and uh, follow-up so that the patient can be healthy. There you have it. Psychogenic non-epileptic events and the difficulties faced by patients and their providers. I'd like to thank Dr. Gangali for joining me on this venture today. She did a terrific job summing up this tough clinical entity for us. And if you thought so too, please let us know by leaving your comments and ratings on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio or Facebook at facebook.com slash brainwavespodcast. For more information on PNES, check out our website at brainwaves.me, which has links to great papers on the subject and some interesting tables and figures. The episode this week was produced by me, Jim Siegler, music by Achua and Kai Engel. Thanks for tuning in. I'll talk with you next week. Is this recording? It is recording. Wait, are we doing this? Yeah. No, we're practicing. I thought we were practicing. I don't know. (laughs) This was a sound check something. Okay. You want to start over? Yeah. Okay. That's fine. You can start over. Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's fine. All right. Um, So...